All your base are belong to us. And welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer, and Eclipse is both the best and worst Twilight book so far. You're not going to hear a lot about the parts that are the best, though. <sighs> yeah, I'm Marion Marketer, and there are times in which I enjoyed um, Jacob. Yeah. Which, which then they were like, mm, you're wrong. Then they were like, fuck you. And then there were times they sincerely enjoyed Edward. And then he opened his mouth. He's kind of funny sometimes. Well, like, I really enjoyed when he would be like, I really, I really appreciated him being like, if you want to go hang out with Jacob, that's you. Yeah. You do you. Mm-hmm. I trust he'll keep you safe. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed just like when he wouldn't speak. <laughs> And he just like comfort her. Bella really does have two hands. I right. I mean, whenever I say that, I feel like the interpretation is that I mean it dirty, and it can be both. But I, I, I since this is a chaste fucking book, like I sincerely mean she can hold both their hands at the same time. Yeah, the stuff I didn't realize that she's literally like not even using tongue when she's kissing. Why no? That was wild to read. I literally yeah. was like, what did I just read? Did I read that correctly? They're just like. Like I do to my fucking cat. <laughs> what was her kiss with Jacob like? I think she went for it. It felt like she went for it, which is probably why she was like, I love him. She'd never like she'd never truly kissed somebody. Yeah. Like anyway. Anyway, yeah. Today we're talking about Eclipse, the third book in the Twilight saga. Um just as a well, first of all, I do want to give a trigger warning for this one because we are going to be talking about sexual assaults, emotional abuse physical abuse, psychological abuse within the context of the book, but also within the context of like society. Um, We're not going to talk about anything more graphic than what is in the book itself, but those are topics that are going to come up in this episode. So if that is distressing for you, feel free to skip this one. You know how it is. Um, Also, I want to give a reminder of what we talked about last time because there's so much to talk about in this series and I don't want to like spend too much time rehashing things that we already spent quite a lot of time on. So just as a refresher, last time we talked about death worship. Um, So death, religion and the afterlife are all really entangled in Twilight in a way that actually fits quite well with our To His Dark Materials episodes. Um, the characters of this series seek death because they believe it will bring them to a place of eternal perfection and they really don't care about anything else they lose along the way. Um, the series also has a preoccupation with youth. Obviously, Edward is much older than Bella, uh, but the way that youth functions in the series feeds back into the death worship. Um, aging is seen as horrific because you're straying further from prote- from perfection. Um We talked about Mormonism, uh, not in the sense of blaming the unsavory content in Twilight on Myers' religion, but in the sense of understanding how her religion interacts with the story and how that's entangled with sexist and racist concepts in our society, as well as in Mormonism in particular. The thing I want to make clear here is that we are are obviously talking about Myers' religion and how that impacts the work that she does, but it is not solely about like pointing the finger at Mormonism and essentially implying that these books would be better if she wasn't Mormon, because I don't think that's true. But you can't, but at, at some point you cannot 
ignore yes. the fact that she's Mormon. Right, right, right. Uh, we also talked about racism and colonialism. Uh, the construction of a real Native American tribe, the Quileute, in this series uses racist tropes and a colonial mindset to change the beliefs, practices, and humanity of a real group to suit the narrative. Boy, howdy, that's coming back. Uh, and gender roles. So this series ascribes to traditional gender roles. Women are caretakers, men are protectors, but provides the illusion of choice to avoid criticism. So that's kind of what we talked about last time. Uh, if you haven't read Eclipse, uh, this one actually has a plot. Yeah. Which is more is. than I can say for the rest of the series. Yeah. Which is like the only reason it was better than the others. Yeah. It was better written. It was readable. Um, so in this one, Victoria, who's the mate of James, the vampire that Edward killed for attacking Bella way back in book one, she is creating an army of newborn vampires to her, uh, to hunt and destroy Bella. Uh, resulting in a bunch of murders in Seattle. At the same time, Bella and Edward argue about their future together. Bella doesn't want to get married, but Edward refuses to change her, which is now a necessity due to the pressure of the Volturi, Volturi which happened in the last book, um, until they are married. Likewise, Bella really, really wants to have sex as a human. Like, she wants to lose her virginity to Edward while she's a human. Like, it is not even like, like, you don't have to read between the lines. No, she, this girl wants to fuck. Um, but Edward refuses that as well in case he hurts her. Jacob is still lusting after Bella to a truly awful degree. There's a bunch of hypermasculine posturing, but Bella chooses Edward after Jacob forcibly kisses her, although they remain friends and later she's like, kiss me to stop him from killing himself. I fucking hate this. Uh, and the vampires and werewolves team up to stop the threat from Victoria's newborn army. That's basically the gist of it. So let's start off on a super light note here and talk about racism. Um, we are unfortunately not done talking about racism in the series. It arguably gets worse. It totally gets worse. Yeah. In this book, while there was a lot of gross language and stereotyping in New Moon, Eclipse is what gives us the entire invented creation myth of the Quileute, which, again, are a real group of people living in the very real La Push area of Washington. Like, these are real people in real places. Um, the actual Quileute creation myth does involve human transformation into wolves, but not like that. Just full stop. Not like that. Um, and one thing I found especially egregious in the film was the choice of costumes for showing this story, which sounds like, like, why fixate on that, Missy? But here's it my... It is important. Uh, I'm not an expert in historical fashion by any fucking stretch of the imagination other than that, as we all are in the, in the Fakey Girls Discord are all now united in our hatred for empire wastes. Um, so I'm not an expert in historical fashion, but the choice of clothes for the vampire character appeared to be like, I don't know, somewhere in like the 16 to 1800s. Uh, because the actual Quileute creation story involves wolves, and this is sort of a creation story for the fictionalized Quileute, there's this like unspoken implication that the Quileute did not exist as such until the arrival of vampires slash whiteness uh in, in into like their ancestral home in the, the La Poche area. Uh in isolation we could read this as sort of a miscommunication with regard to the creation story versus the creation of the werewolf story because I think that's kind of what's happening. They've collapsed the creation of the Quileute and the creation of the werewolves into one story rather than treating them as two different things. Um, but there's this pervasive attitude in real like in the real world, not in the world of Twilight. Uh actually I arguably the Twilight's a little bit better about acknowledging that Native Americans still exist than the real world. But anyway, um, there's this pervasive attitude that Native Americans don't exist anymore and that America came into being with the arrival of white colonizers, um, neither of which are at all true. 
the visual language of the film, in my opinion, unconsciously echoed this belief as if the Quileute did not exist prior to the arrival of white people slash vampires in the Pacific Northwest. I wonder if this has, and I like, like, not like literally like she thought about this, but there's some unconscious connection between in Mormon, like Joseph Smith seeing um, the tablets in the hat and I believe. Does Mormon believe that Jesus was in America? Yes. So, yeah. So, this idea that, like, not life, but, like, a culture of Mormonism started much later Mm -hmm. in the history of the world. So, I wonder if there's just this, like, unconscious idea of, like, well, yeah, it didn't, like, it didn't really truly matter until Mormonism. Yeah. I, like, I think there's just this, this attitude in the film, especially, because I didn't get as much this from... Because I can't see the costume in the book, right? They don't describe the outfit that the vampire was wearing. But in the film, it felt like 16 to 1800, somewhere in there to me, with the implication being that the Quileute did not exist as such until vampires arrived. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I mean, obviously, it's ahistorical in the sense that vampires did not create the Quileute in real life. (laughs) But, But it's also ahistorical in the fact that like Native people existed and had culture long 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 before white people arrived in the pacific northwest like the pacific northwest in particular right because there were there were um pre like uh pre-english explorers um prior to like the pilgrims you know but um it does the the film the visuals of the film seem to imply that the Quileute began with the arrival of whiteness in America. And that's because, like fucked up because you say that because that's when they learned how to turn into wolves. Yeah. Okay. Because the quill, like the werewolf thing seems like such a core part of the Quileute in particular. Yes. And they're, they're like place in, in the world, literally like, because there's so much and like, I don't, it's just, it's really frustrating and racist, frankly, <laughs> because like, I'm just like, their ties to the land and the like the reservation was created by white people like oh it's just the more you scratch at it the more you find it's just it just gets worse and worse the more you think about it it's also difficult like it's frustrating because in the book the the creation story goes on forever so she clearly put a lot of thought into this but but she didn't put enough thought into like what she was really saying she put a lot of thought into like her story and none into the real people this book does feel really defensive so it's not really Mm -hmm. surprising yeah totally also this this book while better than the others was really just an info dump and a yeah um here's here's reasons why things will happen in the next one so you can't get mad at me yeah it was yeah it was definitely the most enjoyable for me to read so far, but like, I mean, I, I would agree. And what's I think, the bar here? It's on the damn floor. Yeah, I think for me, it was just simply that Jacob in the beginning and Edward in the end were both like much more tolerable to me, mm-hmm. unless Edward was talking about marriage. Yeah. Um. So I have a quote I want to read here from "It's a Wolf Thing: The Quileute Werewolf Slash Shapeshifter Hybrid" as Noble Savage by Natalie Wilson, who writes. While I am not suggesting Meyer intentionally drew on literary texts exploring the wolf or wolf, they're spelled differently, uh, her tales undoubtedly incorporate lore that frames the wolf as the dangerous other, an other that is ethnically and or socioeconomically constructed as lesser and evil. That she does so is not surprising as werewolves are traditionally framed as evil and due to a variety of factors, the wolf as evil, as codified in European lore and modern werewolf tales, is a far more common depiction than the wolf as totem protector 
as found in much indigenous lore. Given that indigenous peoples were framed as animals in order to justify colonization, it makes sense that their reverence for the wolf is lost in mainstream cultural narratives. In other words, showing animals as intelligent protectors, as wolves are often framed in indigenous lore, works against the human-slash-animal hierarchy that colonization relies upon. The Twilight Saga echoes the common representation of the wolf and the indigene. Indigene? I've not seen that word before, aside from the fact that I read this quote. Is it like a singular version of indigenous? I believe so. Um, sorry. The Twilight Saga echoes the common representation of the wolf and the indigene. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. As lesser, rather than as a higher spiritual protector and guide. As such, the saga's representation of ethnic others contributes to the long historical tradition of linking the wolf to those framed as poor, savage, uncivilized, evil, and so on. Or as Orenstein puts it, the werewolf is, quote, a dangerous outcast, a social misfit, and a warning of the consequences of that status. So we talked quite a lot about this in the last episode, but this continues in Eclipse. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. It's like she felt like comfortable in her racism. That's the thing is I don't even think I, I simply don't think that she's thinking about it. Like, I just think it doesn't even cross her mind. Even though the vampires and the werewolves work together in this book, there's still so much language and so many story choices that denigrate the Quileute characters as being primitive and literally animalistic. And I think she uses the fact that like Jacob and, and the other and the other people, they and they call them like bloodsuckers and things like that. But like that doesn't have an actual like cultural Right. There's like uh consequence yeah whereas the things that they're saying do yeah so i feel like she used that as a way to be like oh no see they're both getting at each other exactly but it doesn't but like it, there's a history there yeah it's like calling me a cracker like it's, it's just simply not the same it's not the same um even though you know the these characters are literally transforming into animals that doesn't erase the racism behind calling them mongrels saying they stink and mocking them for not wearing clothes like that's just like that's just fucking racist like there's literally that's just not okay it's just not okay under any circumstance like as exactly as you said i think she's trying to counterbalance it by saying like leeches and parasites and so on and so forth but it's it's not they're not equivalent they're not the same and this is like the one of the biggest issues i have with this book it's just so defensive yeah it's so that's defensive when she does that like right she's trying to justify it and just like don't just don't like that's the thing like there's a part when um when Jacob calls Edward a parasite for eating animals. And I'm like, so, buddy, are you a vegetarian? Right? Like, I thought the same thing, right? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so while these wolves might be the friends of the characters, at least temporarily, um, which does challenge the typical European association between wolves and evil and brutality and so on, because, you know, like we're seeing this like nice side of them, whatever, whatever. Um, they are still clearly regarded as lesser than the vampires, as we talked about last time. Um and the vampires clearly stand in for aspirational whiteness. So there's a racial hierarchy to this. Like, it's... Ugh, it's just so much. I mean, look at the, the places in which they... Had, the depiction in which they live. Yeah. And the fact that, like, so many times... I don't know if you noticed this, but so many times when they talk about um, Bella going to, like, someone's house, there's a lot of people there. Mm -hmm. And I also felt like... I just don't know if she's the person to be speaking to that. Cause like there's a, there's probably a cultural thing going on there, but it didn't feel right coming from her. It kind of feels like, um, I don't know, just 
the way the way that she describes where they live and the amount of people in one home and things like it just felt and the fact that they're always shirtless even felt like not great yeah it's we talked about that a bit in our last episode with like yeah on the one hand it's like eye candy for the audience or whatever but there's more to it than that too you can't just stop there um it's one of those things where i'm sure meyer wasn't sitting there like twirling her proverbial mustache and saying haha i'm going to write the most racist shit about werewolves and vampires anybody can imagine i really don't think that's what was going on it could it could have been i don't think that's it though but that doesn't mean it isn't deeply racist right like i don't think that she thought she was writing some kind of propaganda i think that she thought she was telling a compelling story and for many readers she was um this is why it is so good to be aware of how culture informs our thoughts on various topics because it makes it easier to stop yourself from doing this kind of thing and being aware of these ideas also means that when you read them instead of saying well it's fine because they're literally wolves you can think now hold on a second that seems pretty racist yeah um which helps you put up a barrier between you and this ideology right it's Again, this is, and we talk about this a lot. It's not so much like we have to ban these books because they're racist, so much as we need to be able to identify this kind of racist ideology when we see it, because that helps it helps prevent ourselves from just excusing it because it's fiction. Um, that doesn't mean you know you throw the book out the window and never read it again. Although you can if you want to, I certainly want to. <laughs> um, it means that you notice it and you think about how it got there and what that's saying, and maybe you think about what other things you might be missing. You know because everybody has things that they don't always see everybody has things they don't always know about but the more you learn the more you realize oh i have an unconscious bias here that i need to address i have a hard time believing that nobody came to her by this book and was like maybe you need to relook at like how you're like doing things with um publishing is really white i guess that's true publishing is really really white I guess that's true. I'm, I would imagine, I like have this vision in my head of her being like, well, I researched their story. So like, I know its origins and I just changed things, but like, I know it. I respect it. Like, I have this like vision of her just, just trying to justify everything. Yeah. So just more narrowly, just like in the book itself, this is racist and colonialist, as is Myers' co-opting of a real group of people in their history to tell her story about vampires. Why not just make them up? (sighs) She made up the vampires. She's trying to lend it like this air of authenticity, but like, just don't and say you did. You know, <laughs> how many people really knew that that the Quileute actually existed? Probably nobody. And like so, there have like we talked about in the last episode, there have been some benefits to the Quileute as far as getting national mm-hmm. attention for um, recognition of tribe. I think it was recognition of tribal status and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like it, it hasn't been negative in every single sense. But at the same time, like you can do positive things for a real community without being racist yeah. in the process. Um the fact that she did this, that she co-opted a real group of people in their history to tell a story about vampires would be enough for me to say it's bad, but it's worse. The vampires in the Twilight series uphold ideas of whiteness, Christianity, and wealth that feel especially bad when put been put against the depiction of the Native Americans in the series. I simply don't care that Jacob is ostensibly a good guy. He isn't, even no. if Bella forgives him, even if everything is washed away in the next book. Like, he isn't. Like, um, actively a bad guy for yeah. a good chunk of the book um, like literally being like i don't care how you think you feel about me i know yeah. how you feel about me oh like i simply don't care that he's ostensibly a good guy because he is fictional and meyer has chosen to write a native american boy as a sexually aggressive animalistic predator 
That's literally what she has done. She has written a sexually aggressive, animalistic predator who's Native American. And that holds with every colonial myth about Native American people and the threat they represent to white womanhood like since colonization in the US. It's it's just racist. Like, like she watched a western film. It's like yes. Yeah, it got it's so bad. Um it's not that characters of marginalized backgrounds can't have flaws. They can and they should, but that we're looking at a racist construction based on racist history by a white author who does little if anything to counterbalance the centuries of racist rhetoric that this character is built upon. Like it's just so much and it's just like it's inexcusable it is just frankly inexcusable i was so put off by the construction of jacob in this book and it felt like such a huge turn because jacob like in the beginning i really did feel like jacob is a viable option he's nice He, he really like in the beginning of the book there's the i love when she sneaks away and like to see him for the first time and they're just having a good time like mm-hmm. i just liked him being like so nice to her i feel like you know she needed that she needed a friend that was not yeah edward or even alice she needed somebody and he was there and that person just got like oh let's eat him over there yeah it's rough um Uh, So this is a quote from Happily Forever After Constructing Conservative Youth Ideology in the Twilight series, which is by Julia Perlman, who writes, Eclipse marks a unique collaboration and understanding between the wolves and vampires, but the legacy of their respective hatred for the other is impossible to escape. The wolves agree to fight with the Cullens against a common enemy, though the decision is made on the grounds of protecting the people of Forks and Lapush. The Cullens agree to train the werewolves. The were- the wolves are impressed by the Cullens' fighting prowess, and Edward murmurs to Bella, it's good for them to learn some respect. The connotation of this statement is more than paternalism. It's the memory of slavery and colonialism, of white domination over indigenous cultures. Even after the wolves help the Cullens, the Cullens continuously drop snide comments such as go fetch that reaffirm their status as superior. Just the mere Oof. the mere idea of training pisses me off. Like, I know on a literal level it's because the vampires are showing a bunch of new werewolves how to defeat vampires. That's the that's what's literally happening on the page, right? But training mixed with dogs, mixed with Native Americans under the tutelage of the whitest fucking white people. Meyer, through Jasper, even goes so far as to talk about one of the vampires having Mexican features but still looking white after her transformation. Like, these are the whitest of the white. It just it just smacks of racism. There's literally no other word for it. It's even worse when you think about, like, the history of literally, like, stealing Native American children and right. putting them in white schools to make them, quote-unquote, more civilized as and the, like literally what he's saying the quote the quote that that was in the last episode was the kill the indian save the man yeah like it's just that seems like what's happening yeah it's just it's so rough it's so rough and like again i don't think this is meyer doing some kind of intentional propaganda i think that meyer like it's just racist like many and arguably most white american women is thinking of only of people like her like that's all she's thinking about she isn't thinking outside of herself she's thinking about what will make a fun story that she'd like to tell but in relying on centuries of unquestioned racist rhetoric even if she doesn't realize that she's doing it she is perpetuating the myths that lead to discrimination and exploitation 
Um, that's why we need to have this conversation. Not because you can't ever have a werewolf Native American in a book, not even because white people shouldn't be allowed to write characters who aren't the same race of them, race as them, but because when you do this kind of thing, you not only replicate but perpetuate ideas that further white supremacy. Like, this is white supremacist. I understand that, like, I don't think that Meyer would identify herself as a white supremacist. I think that she probably overall thinks that racism is bad, but these are white supremacist ideas in this book. Like, yeah. that is, that is what this is. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to be cognizant of it, because if you if you don't understand that you can accidentally perpetuate white white supremacism, my friend, you are perpetuating white white supremacy. Like, that's just the fact you have you have to know you have to understand what you're doing and what these things mean beyond the like literal fiction of ha what's happening on the page. So that's rough is what I have to say not about great. that. It's not great. Um, do you have anything else to say about the racism? No. It fucking sucks. I'm sure it gets even worse. It does. Uh the <sighs> the framing <sighs> of them at, like of Jacob as like a predator in a sexual sense was over the top. <sighs> and did not like it did not jive with the Jacob that we've nope, been shown. That's the thing. This is the and this is not what I should fixate on. <laughs> but I I team Jacob the first two books team jacob like yeah. sorry about it team jacob but the thing is that this <laughs> i know we joke we joke a lot we joke around a bit here about character assassination but uh jacob black character assassination <laughs> my, not my jacob <laughs> that's not my boy i saw this one instagram or tiktok that was like if you were a team jacob we all know that you are a massive friends to lovers himbo lover it's true yeah and like where did that go like he gets like mean almost in yeah it. like mean and forceful and like like it's bad it's, it's really so bad. bad and it's like it is inextricable from the racism and like the hyper masculinity and the racism and like everything about it they you can't disentangle them they're all tied up together it's so it's so bad so let's talk about something more uplifting gender relations <laughs> um so now we come to the part that you've no doubt heard a lot about before uh the gender relations including ideas of abuse and rape culture in the series this is probably the thing i think that people talk about the most um aside from the sparkly vampires which i think we've established by this point i don't fucking care i don't give a shit if they sparkle i feel like she gave up on that sparkle real quick yeah i like i don't you don't see him sparkle again i i simply do not care i'm um, more worried about them being stone how do you kiss stone i think i put a note in here just make it out how do you kiss a rock um <laughs> you just do it mary uh i guess that's why you have to your lips can't like form into the yeah. others. Oh boy. We've talked about Edward's stalkery behavior before and why his old school values might be appealing to modern readers. So we're not going to revisit that too much. I don't want to keep beating the dead horse here. Um, one thing that really interested me as we were reading this was that much of Edward's bad behavior and it is bad. I want to make that clear. He, he's bad. It's a bad behavior is bad. Um, but I, the thing that interested me was actually it was actually part of his character growth yeah. in this book. As much as I don't like this series and as much as I absolutely fucking loathe Edward, if it was not purely about stopping Bella from seeing Jacob. And he mm -hmm. really did give Bella an apology and say that he needs to trust her more. And he, and he did does. do that. Yeah. Like there was legitimate growth on Edward's part as a character. 
I appreciated that. This book is trash, and I don't want to suggest that this makes the series harmless, but I think we should engage with the book in terms of what is actually happening without leaving things out, right? Because a lot of people are like, he takes the engine out of his car, that's or out of her car. That's abusive. I'm like, you know what? You're right. It is abusive. But, and I, I know nobody wants to hear a but after that sentence, but... <laughs> um. Edward needed character growth. And given the extreme and exaggerated events happening everywhere in this book, I am not forgiving what he did there so much as I am understanding it as a reaction that is contextual. He's worried that Bella will be attacked by the newborn vampires where he cannot see it happen. That's what he's afraid of. There is not not an element of jealousy here, too, right? He is yeah. jealous of Bella's relationship with with Jacob. Um so that's not not a factor, but there is this there is this other element of he doesn't want her to get hurt. There is a very real threat to her, and he wants to be able to ensure that nothing bad is going to happen. Yeah. And he and that behavior is coded as wrong within the text itself, or there would be no need for him to apologize mm-hmm. and make efforts to trust Bella with her own safety. So the thing is, I'm not going to say that this is not an abusive move, and I'm not going to say that it is harmless to depict. What I am going to say is that within the context of what's happening in the book, I think this is not the place to focus our yeah. attention. Um, I is it, it's extreme. Yes, this is a this is a real abuse tactic I have seen yeah. in real life. Like this is not me defending this happening so much as it is. Okay, but there are other confounding factors here, and it's part of his growth arc. Yeah, and later on, he really does become trusting. Like, he trusts her to be with Jacob, Mm -hmm. and he just doesn't really trust Jacob, but he still is like, you know what? I trust him to protect her, and I trust her. Even, like, when she kisses him, he's like, I understand, like, it doesn't bother me because I know that you love me, and Mm -hmm. we're destined. And I'm just like, yeah, that's a better, that's I like this one better. Yeah, again... It's not to say it's not harmless. It's not to say it's not abuse. It's understanding it within the context of a growth arc and what is happening in the book where there are, you know, life-threatening vampires. Like It's, it's something that Jacob didn't get. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't get the, nah. the growth into a bad guy. No. Just um, was. So we do. I do want to talk about romanticizing abuse, though, because that is a big a big topic of conversation when it comes to this series. And I think this book in particular, because this is where everybody's behavior gets real bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so romanticizing abuse is a big topic in books like this, uh, where the male characters are domineering and the female characters are more submissive, generally speaking. This is also a highly popular relationship dynamic in fiction and even in real life. So when we talk about it, we want to be sure that we're understanding power, negotiation, play and abuse. Because the thing is, you can have consensual relationships with unbalanced power dynamics that are not abusive. You can also have relationship dynamics that are uneven and are abusive. There has to be an understanding of consent and of like what is play and negotiation and all these kinds of things that it is not inherently abusive. It is not inherently not abusive. And so when we're looking at relationships like this, we need to understand, okay, what, what is abuse and what is romanticizing in this context? So this is a quote from, um, well, this is what the Domestic Violence Services Network suggests. And this is a quote. It is easy for the reader to identify toxic behavior when the abuser is the villain of the story or at least the rival to the romantic hero. But what about when the abuser is the romantic hero? Abusive and controlling behavior is often portrayed as an expression of love and therefore desirable. 
it is quote unquote romanticized into something positive that the reader should root for and idealize in their own relationships. In addition, the victim is often shown as loving or forgiving for sticking with or taking back an abusive partner. Now, this article uses Twilight as an example several times, which I think is totally fair. Like this, that is a description of what happens in Twilight. Edward is controlling. Bella is submissive. These books absolutely romanticize that power dynamic, by which I mean they sand off the rough edges of Edward's behavior, such as I mentioned above um, or earlier, because you're not looking at an outline. Um, and they make it desirable rather than a red flag, right? Him taking the engine out of his out of Bella's car is a desirable action. It's showing he's protective, even though in real life that would that would be the, like that would be the biggest red flag. That would be a red carpet waving in the air. <laughs> red carpet. Um, Edward is our romantic hero. Therefore, everything he does must be right is what, you know, this kind of story is is leading us to believe. Something Mary and I talked about outside of this episode is that she likes the villainous romances with domineering male characters, but she really hates Edward, which is fair. I also hate Edward. But... I I asked and I was trying not to ask this in a snarky fashion because it sounded there was like no way for me to ask this no. question without sounding snarky, especially because there's like no way for me to ask this question without sounding snarky, especially because I think we're all aware of my lack of interest in this kind of romance <laughs> dynamic. Um, so I asked, you know, what is the difference, Mary? It's fine because I was literally thinking the same thing. So <laughs> it's fine. But at first I was like, well, I just don't fucking like this. And I like those other books. But I thought about it a lot. And what it comes down to, I think, for me, is that the villain, they're they're fucking bad guys. Right. Listen, these mafia guys, like, he, they come back and they have blood all over them. And it wasn't killing the, the bad guys. Mm-hmm. It wasn't killing. I mean, maybe. But, like, like these are bad guys. These right. are very bad guys. And I'm like, you know be bad and if this were to happen in one of the books i read read the the kidnapping would have been romantic right the stalking listen i just read one where there's stalking involved and Mm -hmm. you know what it was fucking weird and fucked up but i liked it right i liked it because he's a bad guy he's not a good guy and you know what there's just something like cathartic about being like well I guess I like you. <laughs> and I guess you're just going to do what you're going to do. Like in like one of the things that bothered me so much about Edward is like this idea that he knows best for Bella. So the example I was I was talking about when I said this to Missy was that he is trying to get her to go to college and he is the way he's doing it is so condescending and being like, mm, you think you don't need to go, but I'm telling you, you need to go. And like the thing, the thing that this reminded me of was you, was you talking about some of the romance novels that yeah. you read where it's like the man is like, you need to sit down and I'm going to take care of everything yep. for you. And I'm like, what is the fundamental difference yes. between these two things? And it's that the villains are just villainous. Like in, if I was, if that were to happen in one of the books that I had been reading, but it's like with a villain, it would be like, I already signed you up for college. You're going, you don't have a choice. Right. It would be like that. And then, but, but but the difference I think when I'm reading those as opposed to reading this is in this they are they are works of fiction they're not real and in those books the the guy does know what's best for the girl and what will work for her because it's a work of fiction and the author knows and well and I think there's a tacit understanding when you're reading that that they are they are villains yeah yeah absolutely like and there's uh, like one of I can't remember that is not true of Edward no it is not there's one um book like begins with like to all the girls who've always written for the villains mm-hmm. and like it's not like and these books are not like um even like oh I love Kylo Retina these books are they're fucking back 
right. not all of the stuff I read, but like there, like if if I'm gonna read a story about, a, like I read one, I don't, I think it was by Tess Bailey, and it was a mafia guy, but he was like kind of soft and like wasn't really that bad. <laughs> soft mafia, yeah, yeah. I, like, he liked, he liked to paint and like he like didn't really want to be in the mafia. I was like, this is not what I'm reading a mafia romance right. for, like at all. Like you may have kidnapped her, but like you feel bad about it. You shouldn't feel bad. <laughs> don't feel bad about it. Yeah, like just don't. Um, so I think that's what it comes down to. This like villains are bad, and in these books with, with villains they know what's best and they know how to take care of the person. And like, it's literally true whether or not she wants it or not because it's a work of fiction and I can go in and I can like trust that this person does know what's right. The thing I want to make clear here though, is that twilight is also a work of fiction, right? And and the reader knows everything Edward's right. But the issue is that he's, but he's the things he's doing are like a villainous thing, but he's not and a there's villain. No, there's no understanding in Twilight that he is behaving villainously. Yeah. Like the idea of like saying you should go to college is not a bad thing, but the way that he's talking about, it, like he literally, he did sign up for college. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, and like even to the point of like you're cheating your way into it. Right. And that's not a good guy thing. Yes, but the book wants us to believe that he's a good guy. And that's where I think this dissonance yes. comes in. Yes. Is the fact that like the book is the book is telling us one thing mm-hmm. and it's not telling us it's not it's not providing yes. any any hint that the the behavior itself is bad. I read books on the complete other spectrum where like um the guy is like super good. Like one of my favorite series is like um they are retired military people and all they do is like good stuff and they're very good people and they're very respectful. If one of them did this in the book, it would be more like absolutely not. Like right. the female character would not stand for that because that is not, that's not the dynamic that is written within these books. So I feel like that's, that's the disconnect for me is that villain, villainous, being villainous is something to commit to. <laughs> you gotta <laughs> and commit. And she's taking these things from books that I do like. And I think that a lot of these, the more, the newer ones probably are taking a lot from Twilight and putting it into, but they're just making Edward bad. Yeah. This is, this is really echoed in this essay, uh, Meet the Cullens Family Romance and Female Agency and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Twilight, which is by Kristen Stevens, uh, who writes, um, Buffy clearly registers her disapproval of such behavior. In the opening episode of season two, when she was bad, Buffy walks alone at night down an empty street. She is stalked by a threatening and shadowy figure, yet rather than the typical response of a damsel in distress or even one enamored, Buffy confronts her pursuer. In witty Buffy style, she retorts, you know being stalked isn't really a big turn on for girls. While her pursuer is revealed to be the vampire closest to her heart, Angel, Buffy identifies the true nature of his actions. Angel is stalking Buffy, and unlike Twilight, in the Buffyverse, this does not translate as romantic, but rather as undesirable and unwanted attentions. This identification of the threatening nature of the stalker within Buffy is further revealed through the actions of the evil Angelus in the later in the latter half of season two. Here again, Angel stalks Buffy, or more appropriately, he now hunts her with all the connotations implicit in the roles of the hunter exemplified by James and the deer hunter of Twilight. Here, Angel's behavior more closely resembles that of Edward as he takes to entering Buffy and her friends' houses uninvited and sketching them asleep. Unlike the romanticized vision of Edward watching Bella sleep, Angelus's presence within the unweary Buffy Buffy's room is constructed as alarming and threatening. Unlike Twilight, predatory behavior is not tolerated within Buffy's world. So what Twilight is missing is that the pattern of Edward's behavior itself is bad. Yeah. Um, 
I think we could argue forever about whether Angel or Edward deserves to be forgiven. Personally, I don't like either of them. Um, but what Buffy has that Twilight does not is the acknowledgement that Angel's behavior is predatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that is the key thing to understand here is like Buffy gets that she is being stalked. Twilight does not, or Twilight, Twilight, the protagonist of Twilight, Bella does not understand that she is being stalked. Yeah, and I think you, like, with the college thing you had mentioned, it feels like another way of, like, stopping by being very defensive. Yeah. About Edward being a misogynist. Right. Like, so would Twilight be better if that behavior was acknowledged as creepy? Yeah. Buffy has its problems, especially given what we now know about Joss Whedon, but I think it's still largely regarded positively, right? Like generally within the sphere of pop culture, Buffy is a much beloved series. There's a lot of reasons that that could be quality being one, uh, misogyny being another, uh, but focusing solely on the behavior of the love interest and the way that behavior is received by the heroine. You know, do we think that Twilight would have less of a reputation for romanticizing abuse if Bella acknowledged that Edward's behavior was not just rude, but outright predatory? Yeah. I Yeah, I, I think that it would, but I'm not 100% sure. Because like having now read three of these books, I'm relatively comfortable saying I don't like them at all. And I think they're pretty bad. Like, yeah, I don't like them, folks. This just in. Not a Twilight fan. Um, But at the same time, I see how much of the context has been left out of casual conversation about them and how much sexism and ageism comes through even in academic work. So much of the academic work I read for this was like, it's for middle-aged housewives. It is for horny teenagers. And I'm like, you, we can have these conversations without having to rely on misogyny and ageism. I hate, I hate those. I hate those arguments. I hate them. Like, we don't, why, why don't we talk about like, horny i mean is buffy not horny right the show yeah it's a horny show it's just for a different demographic like she wears a lot of short skirts yeah feet uh so much feet it's kind of fun to hate twilight i think and which i don't have a particularly strong feeling about other than i think we can do better about focusing on the work and what's really on the page versus saying people who like twilight are stupid or anti-feminist there's a really good um or funny interview between zoe kravitz and robert pattinson and they asked zoe kravitz if she was team edward and she's like i've never actually watched twilight and he just looks at her, he goes it isn't cool anymore to hate on twilight <laughs> she's like i really haven't ever watched it yeah he's like that's people it's not cool anymore like to hate on it it's true like there's really been kind of a reclamation of twilight which i have mixed feelings about because i feel like there is so much misogyny toward twilight fans like i think it's undeniable there's misogyny and ageism and all of these different things toward twilight fans the books are also like mad racist like yeah mad fucking racist and sexist and in ways that i don't think it talked about enough um this is another quote here again from happily forever after constructing conservative youth ideology in the twilight series by julia perlman who writes uh moreover bella participates in her own patronizing in her own patronizing Describing Jacob's fascination with mechanical work, Bella exclaims, I figured I'd have to have a Y chromosome to really understand the excitement. Edward watches Bella sleep, restricts her actions, and even follows her under the guise of his consuming and loving obsession to protect her from harm. And instead of shouting sexual harassment, Bella feels, quote, a strange surge of pleasure. Bella is at once subjected by and accepting of male patriarchy. She passively submits to male domination and further encourages the reader to do the same. 
So here we have an extreme reliance on gendering personality traits that Bella would need a Y chromosome to understand mechanics. Um, But I think more importantly, you have the literal romanticization of stalker behavior, right? Like literally. Meyer acknowledges through Bella that the pleasure she takes in being literally objectified as a precious item that needs protecting is strange. Like she uses that word to describe it. Um, But Bella never expresses that to anybody other than the reader. Uh, what's communicated here is I'm objectified, but I like it, which I've read those. That's the thing. It's like, it's fine, I think, within fiction to to have that feeling. But we need to understand what's going on and like maybe grapple a little bit with that strangeness. Like, I think it's good, actually, to to lean into that and be like, what does it mean that I'm strangely yeah. into being objectified? I think. I think there's a like another difference between like more modern versions of this like romanticizing stalking stalking like something like Haunting Adeline or Twilight is there is an understanding within the newer books of like this is all, all those types of books come with trigger warnings they right. all do because and I don't I don't think that all books should come with tw- trigger warnings but I think there's a real acknowledgement of these specific types of books understand these things are bad and mm-hmm. stephanie meyer not that twilight needs trigger warnings i don't believe that at all but there's no understanding that they're bad right like on the one hand i think that taking pleasure in being looked at and being protected is not a bad thing yeah uh but we're considering this in the context of this book where male domination and rape culture are normalized we're going to get to that in a minute in a minute um it's not that bella can't be flattered by edward's interest it's that with everything else going on with regard to gender abuse and domination we should ask what else is being communicated right um, I don't want to argue whether Buffy or Twilight is more feminist, a word that I just generally don't like to apply to media at all. Uh, but in comparing them, we can hopefully see the difference between romanticizing bad behavior and encouraging readers to do the same and acknowledging that bad behavior can happen in relationships without romanticizing it. Because I think now I'm not a Buffy expert by any stretch of the imagination. I actually don't really care for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm sorry, everybody. I just don't. And I couldn't get into it. But I think I think that the fundamental difference and the thing because everybody wants to compare Buffy and Twilight, right? Like because there's like a a very popular T-shirt around the time of um, Twilight's like big heyday that was like and then Buffy staked Edward the end, right? Yeah. And it's like I'm not here for that. I don't fucking care. I don't fucking care about that. I don't know. I don't care what Buffy would do to Edward. It's not interesting to me. What I care about here is the way that the two pieces of media treat the stalker love interest and one is hey you're being a fucking stalker i still like you but you're being a fucking creep right now versus i love it when you objectify me (laughs) an acknowledgement that that is okay yeah like if if bella was like you're objectifying me it's kind of hot like then there's consent given exactly instead of just instead of just implying that the objectification itself is good right like if Bella put on some sexy sexy laundry and did a little pose for oh Edward, oh my god, that'd be so funny. I'd be into that, right? Like I would be He'd like, be so mad. It would be great. I would be I would be here for that. But instead, it's just like Edward objectifying her and objectifying her, and it's for her own good. That's the thing that gets me. Whereas again, not to make a huge deal of comparing Buffy to Twilight, but like the acknowledgement in Buffy is there. Your behavior's bad. Yeah. I might I might like you. I might I might feel a little flattered by the fact that you're following me around, you little weirdo. But your behavior is creepy and you're being a creep. Yeah. Um, she forgives him. That's fine. But there's the acknowledgement that the behavior is a problem. 
Um, this is a quote from my vampire boyfriend, Post-Feminism, Perfect Masculinity, and the Contemporary Appeal of Paranormal Romance, which is by Ananya Mukherjee, who writes, Vampire boyfriends are, a, are complex instanti- instantiations of every positive aspect of masculine privilege without personifying those more threatening facets of hypermasculinity, the violence or the uncontrolled sexuality. The great popularity of this genre suggests that many female readers are seeking certainty and protection and to maximize their options as women without curtailing feminine pleasures, a desire that is definitely worth acknowledging and addressing. The actual embodiment of such a fraught blend of characteristics, though, would be unwieldy, overbearing, and potentially explosive. We know very well that no human man could emulate a vampire boyfriend, but I would argue, too, that no human man should. We've talked about this in previous episodes on vampire fiction, Twilight and the Vampire Diaries, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. But I think there is a line between what we want from fictional boyfriends and fictional vampire boyfriends, more specifically, and what we want from real ones, right? The trouble is in drawing those lines in reality, especially when we're talking about fiction targeted at young readers. Is Twilight encouraging young readers to date men like Edward? I think in some ways it is, but not in merely depicting Edward. I don't think that just having Edward existing is an issue. In my opinion, the series commits far worse sins than having Edward be controlling, especially because he does acknowledge when he's wrong. We'll That's that another bit. really good example uh, point of like the difference between what I like. The one is for adults. Yeah, <laughs> it's for adults. I think, like, I think Im- adults are not immune to no. to you know to ideology. Um, but at the same time, like as we talked about in our first Twilight episode, the hypodermic needle model for how we interact with fiction is generally disproven, right? E- less research has been done on young readers, but like, re- like give them the tools to succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, I-, I think that given the tools to succeed, this isn't such an issue. Um, I think it's not wrong to fantasize about things you don't want in reality, I say. Yeah. Um, I also think it's important to provide alternatives and to encourage questions for young readers. Like if I were a parent or an aunt to a young reader who enjoyed this series, I might ask what they like about it, right? Mm -hmm. What draws them to a character like Edward? I think you can have those conversations without condescension and emphasize that while it's fun to read about, there are reasons to avoid it in real life. Like I think that those conversations are good and that we need to give young readers the tools to push back and interrogate on the things that they read rather than just saying don't read that it's bad for you and then missy is the aunt hides alana books in every single crevice of that child's exactly (laughs) why are you reading about edward read about george yeah i know he's older than her don't worry about it don't think about that don't think about it just like edward (laughs) just like edward yeah i know she's normalizing the may december romance don't worry about it she thinks it's hot it's fine there's a lot of tiktoks (laughs) about that yeah, that was very funny. Everybody, everybody can come for Tamara Pierce being problematic because she likes an she likes an old boyfriend. But like, listen, we all got problems. George, George can get it. Anyway, I love I love a good age gap, so <laughs> I'm with her. So let's talk about rape culture. Uh, let's get into the parts where I'm actually concerned about the content because woof, these uh-huh. books, <laughs> these books normalize rape culture in a very real way. Uh, rape culture, if you're not familiar with the term, it's one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot, but not necessarily attached to a particular definition. You know, kind of like emotional labor. It's another big one. Um, rape culture is a description of a setting. Um, and the, the term arose in second wave feminism, roughly the 1970s, uh, which means in, so rape culture, the, term uh, means a culture in which rape is normalized and pervasive. Um, Prior to the creation of this term, many people assumed that rape and associated forms of violence, such as other forms of sexual assault and domestic violence, for example, um, before the term rape culture arose, a lot of people assumed that those things were rare. Um, 
as this theory has developed, a number of behaviors and normalized ideas have been attributed to rape culture, such as victim blaming, slut shaming, sexual objectification, rigid associations between gender and traits, such as dominant submission, aggressiveness, passiveness, etc., um, and teaching women to not get raped rather than teaching men not to rape. We're using the baseline here. People of any gender can rape people of any gender. And the fact that we primarily talk about men raping women is not only a sign of rape culture, but also a perpetuation of it. It's all it's complicated. It's all very complicated. This is harmful to people of all genders, not just women, right? We, we often talk about the harm that rape culture does to women, which is very real. But in fact, rape culture is harmful to everybody um, in the same way that patriarchy is harmful to everybody. Uh, the pressure for men to be sexually aggressive and dominant is a na- negative experience for men, too. Uh, just as the pressure to be passive is a negative experience for women, and both binary and non-binary trans people experience harmful stereotypes and pressures of their own, in addition to those that affect binary cis people, right? Like, it is a complicated mishmash of just fucking everybody every which way. Like, it's it's just bad overall. I think we can agree. It's it's rough out there. It's a reverse harem that isn't fun. It's Yeah, it just sucks. Um, now, as far as we've read, no rape occurs in the Twilight series, aside from Rosalie's backstory, which is rife Ugh. with victim blaming. I um, almost died when she's like, and then I kind of wish that I was my ugly friend. <sighs> like so much in that, like so much in that moment that she, like there's so much to unpack here, Rosalie. Yeah, truly. Um, but I still think it unquestioning, unquestioningly creates a rape culture setting, not only because it is set within our own real world, with a few tweaks, of course, um, but because of the gender politics and the actions of the characters, but especially how those actions are received. So one of the first things I want to talk about here is male dominance and female submission. Um, These are two criteria for a rape culture because there are rigid assumptions about how men and women should behave. Um, If all men should be dominant and all women should be submissive, according to our culture perception, which I think is generally speaking, something that we still as a culture hold to, even if like there is more pushback on it. Um, So if our culture says all men should be dominant and all women should be submissive. That means that people who are not those things are deviant, right? Um, that brings us into victim blaming. For example, if a woman does not behave, quote unquote, appropriately, according to our culture, she is deviant and potentially sending the wrong message. So if, she, you know, if a woman does not behave appropriately, according to our culture, she is deviant and therefore potentially sending the wrong message to men who cannot be expected to control themselves because of their innate tendency towards sexual aggression. Again, according to culture, these are not things that we believe here on Fake Geek Girls. Um, So if a woman dresses too sexily or behaves too aggressively, according to rape culture, she is essentially tempting fate, right? She She is doing something deviant and therefore within rape culture, she maybe not deserves to be punished, but she can't be surprised when she is punished. You kind of like feel this when um, Bella goes to what Port Townsend, yeah, and almost gets raped, and you're like, "Well, Bella, why are you doing that?" Right, and but it's like, no, yeah. Um, while this itself doesn't come up in Twilight, again, aside from Rosalie's backstory, we do see gendered power dynamics, especially in Edward and Bella's relationship. While Bella clearly wants to have sex with Edward, he shuts so her bad. down. She wants she's so she wants to go so bad. Um, he shuts her down for a variety of reasons to protect her soul because he's old school, but also because he cannot control himself. Like that is the given reason. 
What he means is that he will hurt her because of his big hard body. <laughs> and not to jump forward, but that lit- like he literally does hurt her with his big hard body. Um, but there is still the connection between being a man and a lack of control with regard to sex. I fucking hate everything he has to say about sex and marriage. Yeah. I fucking hate it. Every time he's like, no, Bella, we have to wait. I'm old fashioned. Let me have this one thing. Blah, blah, blah. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. I can't stand the way he speaks about marriage and sex. It sounds so condescending. Mm-hmm. Like she's just this little girl who doesn't understand that this that I'm still a predator. Right. But like a good one. But like I could still hurt you. Therefore, I know what's best for right. you. Fuck you. Um, Just fuck. <laughs> so this is a quote from Denial and Salvation, the Twilight Saga and Heteronormative Patriarchy, which is by Ashley Donnelly, who writes, while many read the abstinence in the series as a guide to Christian morality for horny teenagers, there are arguably other latent messages associated with this emphasis on denial. Edward's denial not only controls his life choices, but Bella's as well. And this control over her decisions reflects the strong patriarchal dominance of the tales. From Edward's nearly complete control of Bella's life to the acceptance of domestic abuse and the binding of females in the werewolf community, men are frighteningly superior throughout the series. Edward's quote-unquote moral restraint indicates not only his ability to dominate his relationship with Bella, but also implies that masculine strength is needed to restrain the wild feminine a theme present throughout the entire series which clearly celebrates patriarchal dominance and heteronormativity edward isn't the only controlling man in this series uh that's the one we talk about most often like when i when i say we i mean kind of like culturally when this book comes up we often talk about edward's bad behavior but he's not the only one he's kind of the most direct about it and that he controls bella's life direction her relationship and her sexual desire But also, the werewolves are all men except Leah, who, without a shred of irony, is the bitchiest woman in a story that isn't a villain. Um, Charlie tries and admittedly fails to control her dating life. Bella's biggest struggle is being torn between two men who want to determine her future. The Cullens are a patriarchal family, and so on. (laughs) It's not just that you have men in positions of power, but that men are always the authority, the deciders, and the aggressors, especially over women's destinies. And I think... When I read this in the outline, I was like, this, this is what bothers me about his conversation about sex and marriage. Ultimately, he's taking away all of her choice. Right. Even the choice to have sex while she's a human. Right. Like every single thing that she has, he's talking about like, oh, all these human, human experiences you won't be able to have anymore. But he's taking the ones she wants away. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like, like, not like wanting to wait for marriage, like not wanting to wait to get married, not allowing, not having sex. Like, yes, Edward has every right to say, like, I don't want to have sex. Yeah. But that's, he does. You know, he fucking does. Right. And, and I just, he's completely taking away any option she had. They don't fucking do anything besides smooch with their mouths closed. Yeah. And because Edward really becomes the guardian of Bella's chastity, it really hammers home that a woman's sexuality does not belong to her, but rather to her future male partner. There is there is no room for queerness in Twilight, just full stop. But that the, the idea that her chastity or her virginity, as this book would think about it, virginity is a social construct. It is not real. Um, d- disclaimer. But uh, the fact that her chastity belongs to her future future male partner is rape culture. The idea that sex with a woman is the domain of men who are constructed as aggressive and domineering. That's rape culture right there. Um, And I believe that this series attempts to get around that by having Edward be respectful and encouraging of Bella when it comes to other issues like going to college. 
Uh, but a gentleness in some regards does not override the protective guarding of her chastity, which we'll get to in a moment after we talk about one of the series' other uncomfortable ideas. Imprinting. Uh. So imprinting comes up in this book, but is a larger factor in Breaking Dawn. Um, imprinting in nature, it's a real thing. It's a process by which animals form deep bonds with animals, people, or objects that they are presented with at critical moments in their development. Um, this helps the animal develop important bonds with their parents for protection as well as forming their own identity. Um, some re research historically has shown that, for example, a wild bird imprinting on a domesticated bird can result in more domesticated behaviors in the wild bird. I did not look too deeply into this, so don't quote me on that. Sounds right. But like, at least one study showed that. That is not quite what's happening in the Twilight series as far as imprinting goes. Um, as Jacob describes, imprinting is a process by which werewolves essentially discover their soulmates. Um, they see the person they're meant to be with and every other aspect of devotion falls away, even if it wrecks their other relationships. Um, he also states that it's actually not creepy at all because if the person they imprint on is underage at the time, they simply have just a really good older brother with no sexual feelings whatsoever. This is another one of those feeling really defensive yes so yes. like like literally jacob is defensive in this and he's like literally was like i know this sounds bad but um but like here's the thing it is bad it's it's just a lot of like anticipating backlash and responding to it without just like doing any work to just okay like then show me just be bad <laughs> and be like yeah that's what now we have to keep him away from her until she's of age sure, i'd be that i mean well wait until breaking dawn um i and just like with a lot of twilight it's not hard to understand why this might be appealing to people right um the the whole like soulmate thing is is very appealing to a lot of people the idea of like i love a court of thorns yeah like the idea of like this destined one person is the right person for you that's appealing to a lot of people and, and i don't think that that inherently is wrong um, but women do not get any say here, except presumably Leah. <laughs> they literally become the object of obsession for these men. And we're meant to just be like, oh, it's chill because it's romantic and are innocent. In the context of domineering men in rape culture we're discussing, though, it's yet another red flag. Men literally have objects of obsession who do not get any say in being the object of, of obsession. If a woman were to say no to this relationship, she'd essentially be saying, you deserve to be alone forever. Like... There's no room for a woman to say no. Yeah, no, there isn't. It's just so much. Yeah. You know? It's just so much. It, especially, like, imagine being, like, growing up knowing you can't date anyone else. Right. Like, like you can't. You can't. Because of the way that the 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 wolves are written. Literally, a big, so scary man has entitlement over your body. <gasps> That's fucked up. <sighs> Stephanie. Yes, Stephanie. That's fucked up, Stephanie. That's Again, why just make them evil. The, the thing, like, yeah, it's like, okay, I understand how in the context of a different style of book, this would just be like, oh, spicy, you know? But like, this is not that book. This is just painting it as good and right. I read a really good um, fan fiction, which unfortunately caved to a lot of criticism. Um, it was a Raylo fan fiction. It was one of the soulmates, like the soulmate mark ones. Mm -hmm. And Ray was underage in it. And... Uh, Ben had to deal with the fact that she that she's underage and like not wanting to engage in that and like he leaves for a really long time and it was it was I had a really good conversation about this kind of thing mm -hmm. and how to deal with it and I was pissed because so many people got mad at her for having him leave until she was like 25 or something like that I'm like yo dude it's it was the right thing to do I think like sincerely I like I sincerely this is not a trope that I'm into 
Um, but like many things, just because I personally am not into it doesn't mean that it can't be done in a way that doesn't like totally squick me out. You know, mm-hmm. like I think I think that indulging in sometimes our um, our less savory fantasies is not inherently a bad thing. But like, let's be honest about it and not act like, well, actually, it's chill because he's only a big brother while she's underage. And then magically, when she turns 18, then he's DTF. Like, let's just be like, men can fucking have restraint. Yeah. Or I'm not sexually attracted to a child. I just like... acknowledge acknowledge it like acknowledge this is this is an unequal power dynamic and i'm gonna do whatever i can to make it equal or say it's kind of fucked up isn't it (laughs) but just be fucked up right be honest i just when it comes to this kind of thing i just want honesty about what's going on i want the acknowledgement that like this is kind of this is kind of fucked up and if we're gonna if we're going to have this essentially men's desire overpowers women's desire then let's talk about that yeah because you have to talk about the like uh, there eventually has to be a conversation of like at what point can you is it okay to be sexually attracted to your now soulmate right like what age is that and how are you going to deal with that and like yeah it may not be creepy now let's accept okay let's accept the idea that he's like a big brother but what happens when does that change and how do you handle that yeah you can't just accept that I, yeah, I just want some some acknowledgement that like it's complicated and that choice is being made and yeah. it's not just a magical switch that flips at some point, you know? <sighs> so let's talk about abstinence. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about chastity and the book's relationship with abstinence because it's everywhere. Um, again, we've talked before about Myers's religion and how that is a factor in the romance that she's writing, which in this case does not include premarital sex for reasons that are articulated quite clearly in the book as involving sin, right? This was the hardest thing for me to, to like not reconcile, but be like continue to tell myself she's Mormon. This is something she deeply believes in. Right. I have to accept that this it's is part simply, of this world. It's simply not part of your worldview. Yeah. Um, it, it like this book is quite clear that sin is a factor here. It is not just like it's not sin just sin is very, very real. Yeah, sin is real to these to these characters. Now, Bella doesn't seem particularly worried <laughs> about the idea of of being sinful. Um, or maybe she has a liberal interpretation of what premarital sex entails, honestly. Like there because there is a lot of like even within, you know, Christian communities, like what counts as virginity? Like yeah. is it is it penetrative? You know, is it penetrative? Is it a hand job? Is it anal? Is it like, kissing? Yeah, like what? What? The, 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 as I said, virginity is not real, so like that's why you can you can have these kind of flexible definitions of what counts. So it is, you know, it is quite possible that Bella has a liberal interpretation of what sex entails. Like it could be that maybe she just wants to do oral. It is possible that 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 that's what's going on. Um, but Edward sure has a. Uh, sure has an idea of what sex is. And as the guardian of her chastity and the person who she wants to have sex with, he gets final say. Now, one thing I want to distinguish here is that anybody has the right to refuse sex at any time for literally any reason. If Edward doesn't want to have sex, he does not want to have sex. And that is enough. Cool. Um, My issue is not with Edward wanting to wait until marriage, which is fine, um, but rather with with what that choice is saying and what it is doing to Bella in the larger context of this book and looking beyond that in rape culture. What people do or do not do before marriage is none of my business, but we are not talking about real people. We're talking about fictional people within a fictional world made up by an author whose work contains racism and sexism in a lot of ways. It really feels like he uses getting married 
uh, it's like holds her hostage. Mm-hmm. Like you have to get married or we can't have sex. And it's not necessarily like that's his true belief, in which it is framed as his true belief in there, but it really doesn't feel that way. It really feels like, mm, you can't be too horny unless we're married. It feels chastising. Yeah. And it's like, Especially because she doesn't want to get married. Listen, a lot of people experience premarital desire. You don't have to shame the desire, right? Like, a lot of people experience that. Or, like, find other ways to, like, you know, gain the gain pleasure without yeah. doing, touching each other. I don't know. Listen, there's all there's kinds of stuff you can do. All kinds. It's 2022. It wasn't for these characters, but it is now. Um, this is a quote from Team Bella, Fans Navigating Desire, Security, and Feminism by Ananya Mukherjee, who writes, uh, Bella learns early on to hold very still and resist the urges of her lust when Edward kisses her to help him maintain the control necessary to prevent his accidentally killing her. Meyer explained in an interview with the website Twilight Lexicon that the venom in Edward's mouth prevents what she called true snogging with the human Bella, precluding open mouth kisses and other intimacies that might result in the transfer of saliva. Each of Meyer's vampires chooses one true eternal mate and there are no gay characters or explicit references to homosexuality at all. Okay, can I? There's so much to unpack here, but uh-huh. but but like, is the idea that if I just spit on someone, they'll turn into a vampire? I don't think it's quite that. So why can't she ingest this venom? Because she that, can that ingest it into her fucking vagina. I think that would begin the process of transformation. So you just go around spitting on people. That's what the sp- well. I think it has to essentially get into like a mucous membrane. <sighs> in the same well, here's how you can think of it, and this is bad, but think of it like an STD. Oh yeah, it is. Vampirism is not necessarily a sexually transmitted disease, but it also kind of functions like a sexually transmitted disease, right? In the way that that Edward is protecting her from his venom. So there, venom. Um, <laughs> so there's literally no, like, she has never touched the inside of his mouth. As far as I understand, no. She has. I want you to. I want you to think about that, viewers. Mm-hmm. She has never touched the inside of his mouth unless it's supposed to something like her fingers or her toes. Her Ew. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she's finding pleasure some other way. Maybe. But she has never touched the inside of that man's mouth. Yeah. Is there saliva if he's just a rock? Apparently. I guess there's venom. Yeah. There's always venom. Uh, (laughs) Each one of the sentences in this quote here is a whole new layer to dive into. It's a real seven layer bean dip of what the fuck. Uh, Edward's restraint is a big part of his appeal as a character, right? Like, I think, I think we can understand that the fact that Edward has so much restraint toward Bella is part of what makes him an endearing character to a lot of people. Yes. Um, especially because, as we've talked about in the past, it sets him apart from other male characters. Like, certainly he's positioned against, uh, Jacob, who has no restraint. Um, but Bella is also responsible for controlling herself to not set his monstrous urges off, which is like, this is rape culture. I think that what she was trying to like, I think there's a lot of things going on that she's trying to do. But what if I were to give her all as much credit as I could, I would imagine she's trying to recreate tension in these books that Bella likes, like um, Pride and Prejudice and things right, like that. Right, Wuthering of, Heights. Yeah, of like this tension of like you don't really touch each other, but there's clearly a lot of sexual tension going mm-hmm. on, and you both want to bone, but you know there's sexual tension going on, you can't do anything. You have too many clothes on to bone. And, uh, yeah, and then in the end you bone, and so I think like this, this whole tension of building up to the, when they finally do have sex. I feel like if I were to give her all the credit and not think about anything else, maybe that's what she was trying to do. Yeah, and I think well, I think that. The thing that she's missing here is that the women in those stories still have agency. They are making a choice, not 
to have premarital sex, right? Like that is a choice that they are making. That is not a choice that Bella is making. That is a choice that Edward is making. And again, Edward has the right to not want to have sex before marriage, but it is under the guise of protecting Bella from his monstrous libido and his rock hard body and his monstrous (laughs) urges to just destroy her. Buddy, that's rape culture. Like the idea that a man cannot control himself, that's rape culture. Um, like, like that's just what it is. Even if he is a literal monster, the woman needing to control her sexuality to avoid sending a man into some kind of fucking frenzy is literally the rhetoric I was taught as part of my abstinence-only sex education. That is what I was taught in no uncertain yeah, terms. Exactly. Like literally. Literally <sighs> down to the kissing. Right? L- like literally. This is from the fucking b- rule book. Out of our seventh grade abstinence-only sex education. Maybe Stephanie and I wrote it. Maybe. <laughs> I am definitely reading a book where he is a monster and he really can't control himself and he really tries to hold himself back. Mm-hmm. But he's also a dragon. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> and you can see how this harms people of all genders, right? Women must be chased. Men, must, men are unco- uncontrollable monsters. It's not good for anybody. Like, this is a miserable life. Um, the part about kissing here with the venom is so strange. Apparently, they're just lightly kissing one another on the lips after a year of dating. So when she turns into a vampire, do you think their kissing will sound like just two rocks hitting I each other? Ho- to- it sounds like when you throw a rock, like you have a big rock and you throw it into the shallows at the ocean. It's just like, cool. <laughs> it's kind of wet, but it's really clunky. I do like my note here. How do you even kiss a rock? Yeah. Um, there are activities that do not involve swapping spit, uh, and they, but they are arguably probably too close to sex. Um, and I don't know why this just blasts me right out of my body to think of a modern teenager who clearly wants to have sex just sitting there lightly smooching her undead boyfriend so he doesn't kill her. But I just, I, I read that and I was like, Ugh. I just, I literally thought to myself, what did I just read? Yeah. What did I just read? Just, just don't. Which is why when she kisses Jacob and she's like... I'm I'm assuming it was not a, just a quick old peck. No. Um, she's like, oh, clearly I'm in love with him too. Yeah. Well, yeah, girl, because you had an actual good kiss. Yeah, girl had girl had her first surge of hormones. Yeah, like you didn't fall in love with him. You fell in love with kissing. Yeah. Um, and and you know heteronormativity sure is a thing here. I don't even know that it's heteronormativity so much as a complete and utter lack of queerness anywhere. Um, there is no room for queerness in this series. Heterosexuality isn't just normal. It is the only option. Uh, and given the overarching themes of religion and purity, it's not surprising. But it makes me feel like this is an especially hostile space to queerness. Like this series, it is... I know out there people are, you know, imagining queer versions of Alice in particular. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, like, I know I know that. But it, me trying to do that in my mind... I can't. This this book, this series feels actively hostile to queerness. Which like, is just so interesting when, like, you really do see quite often women being like, Alice showed me mm-hmm. I like more than dudes. And, like, <laughs> I just love that because yeah. this book truly is like, Alice loves dude. Yeah. Like you, like, you do you. You, like, every person has the right to imagine characters in whatever way they, they choose. But to me, this this series feels so hostile to queerness that I simply can't make it work without fundamentally changing so yeah. much of the story. I feel like Rosalie could have been queer. I wish. I feel like that would have like it would have it would have tracked. Yeah, I would love to have a bitchy lesbian. Yeah, but 
Stephanie Meyer is like, no. Those don't exist. Those don't exist. Um, this is a quote from Twilight has created a new YA genre, Abstinence Porn, which was by Christine Seifert, who writes, ultimately, it's a statement of the sexual politics of Meyer's abstinence message. Whether you end up doing the nasty or not doesn't ulti- ultimately matter. When it comes to a woman's virtue, sex, identity, or her existence itself, it's all in the man's hands. To be the object of desire in abstinence porn is not really so far from being the object of desire in actual porn. Um, I believe that Seifert was actually the person to coin abstinence porn as a description of what's happening in Twilight, meaning that the book is is fiction meant to titillate through denial, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's exactly what happens in this series. It is it is fiction titillating through denial, um, not in like the typical way. Bridgerton, you know did what this I mean? Really good. <laughs> Bridgerton, oh yeah. Bridgerton did this well. Yeah, uh, not in that way, uh, but by specifically being about abstinence, because this is an abstinence book. <laughs> uh, what Seifert, ex- or C- I'm sorry, I don't know if it's Seifert or Seifert. Um, what she explains here is that even though Bella and Edward don't have sex, and therefore Bella isn't objectified in the way we might expect from traditional pornography, she is still objectified because, as she says later in this essay, Bella is not in control of her body, as abstinence proponents would argue. She is absolutely dependent on Edward's ability to protect her, her life, her virginity, and her humanity. She's the object of his virtue, the means of his ability to put his, to prove his self-control. In other words, Bella is a secondary player in the drama of Edward's abstinence. Yep. Because a lot of um, abstinence advocates, abstinence-only education advocates, suggest that it, that it is further in support of a woman's choice um, to choose to be abstinent. But in this book, it's, Bella's not making a choice. Bella's not the Mormon. Bella is literally not. If Bella, if Bella, if Edward would was da- was down to fuck, Bella would be down to fuck. Bella would be the first one there. Yeah, she'd show up, party hat on. But um, and that's it, and that's it. Nothing, Nothing but else. a party hat. But um, it's Edward's choice, right? It's not about Bella's choice. If Bella had her choice, they'd be doing it. But Edward is the one making the choice here saying no 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 we don't do that and i think that's like in the context of like what stephanie meyer is trying to create i think that's supposed to be even more like oh what a good man what a good man yeah Um, what a man what a man (laughs) what a very what a mighty good man what a mighty good man um bella is in danger from edward sure literally right like that's true um but this isn't really even about her physical body uh, it's about their immortal souls, and especially Edward's soul, since he's so torn up about being a monster. If Bella had a different boyfriend who wouldn't literally kill her, I feel like she'd probably have sex with him. Like, I don't think she'd be all that worried about it. Um, but because Edward's abstinence is the focus here, and Edward guards Bella's body and soul, she doesn't. Her body is the thing that Edward must resist, which turns into her, which turns her into an object, even if she isn't having sex. She's objectified by Edward's abstinence rather than by sex. Um, it's fascinating like i find that very interesting but i think it's also rape culture right like it is still relying it is still the story of edward's abstinence against bella's wild untamed sexuality with bella being essentially in the wrong i appreciate that the book doesn't go out of its way to be like bella's disgusting because she's horny but at the same time having edward be the one to be the guardian of her chastity does kind of paint her her desire as deviant in some sense oh it's i think it totally does i totally think it does i think it's trying to give bella some more texture yeah like i'm like let bella be horny yeah what's that what's that like i support women's wrongs yeah (laughs) i want to i like i feel like a lot of a lot of my um irritation here could be 
uh, could be soothed, maybe not erased, but soothed by Bella leaving Edward's house and then going home and opening up AO3. That's all you got to say. I know, right? The rest. Like, there, like, there's no, like, I mean, if she's not doing anything, I, I, she's not doing anything to help herself. It's only making things worse. I, yeah. And I don't know. I have, like, not everybody's ready to have sex in high school. Not everybody's even ready to masturbate, you know? Everyone do you. Everybody does their own thing. But I think that, like, acting like desire can only, like, be fulfilled through sex. Yeah. And not even just curiosity. Like, I feel like Bella has no curiosity about sex. Well, up until Bella, neither Edward hasn't had any. Yeah. I just And even then, I think it's debatable that Edward does have curiosity about having sex with with her. I think he's more worried about like literally literally, saving her. I think literally Edward may never have felt desire until Bella. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, So Bella is allowed to be unabashedly horny and she isn't shamed for that really, which I do appreciate. There's not even really a move to shame her for wanting sex before marriage. I think there's this sort of like, uh, humans in their base needs tone at times. Um, but it feels like we're, we are meant to identify with Bella in these moments where she is, you know, being horny. Um, I think we're meant to identify with Bella rather than the vampires, even if we aren't meant to aspire to be them. It just sucks that she's not allowed anything at all. Like use your imagination, Edward. Use your imagination, Bella. He could write her. A, he could write her a fan fiction of themselves. Write her like, I mean, return to the Wuthering Heights. And I mean, I haven't read Wuthering Heights, but like, return to the novels. That, write a spicy letter. Tuca and Birdie got it. With tu- with Birdie being obsessed with the Regency romance, where like yeah. they kiss each other out after eighty five years. Yeah, she gets it. Like it doesn't. You don't have to literally have sex to like fulfill desire that's what i'm getting at with like the ao3 thing yeah. that's what i'm getting at is yeah, you don't yeah, have yeah. to you don't have to literally touch yourself you don't have to do it because I, I mean that might be considered it probably is considered sinful within the context of these characters right like that, that's still probably a sin experiencing desire might be a sin i'm not super familiar with what counts and what doesn't count so don't don't quote me on that i'm not an expert but i also think that like an acknowledgement that desire doesn't have to literally mean having sex or masturbation or any of those things would have gone a long way to making me feel less like Edward is in is Edward's just controlling her virginity. I can't stand him. Yeah, he sucks. Everything that has to do with this conversation and him just pisses me off. <sighs> yeah. It just makes me so mad. It's rough. Do you have anything else to say about that mess about abstinence and rape culture and I feel like part of this our anger also comes from just our our um, childhood and what we it's true it's true so one weird angle here I had a lot of feelings reading this book I'm from the Pacific Northwest I'm from the Seattle area Um, I grew up here I've lived here my whole life Um, and the way that Seattle is discussed in this in this series and in this book in particular really interested me with regard to class so i'm going to take you on a little detour here to talk about seattle and its demographics and it's like recent history um but bear with me we will return to twilight um one thing we haven't talked about much is that vampire fiction is often associated with conversations about class this is very common um, a lot of vampire stories, they're about consumption, right? Like that is what they are about. They are about someone consuming, feeding off of somebody else. 
Um, this goes all the way back to Dracula, arguably even earlier, but Dracula is the one that like a lot of people talk about, the Bram Stoker version, um, which people have read a number of themes into, including that it is about the exploitation of the lower classes by the aristocracy or the exploitation of um, like the white English by the outsider. Um, there's a number of readings that you can pull from it. Uh, I can't speak to that because I didn't finish reading Dracula. I actually am reading it right now because of Dracula Daily, which is a newsletter that sends you real-time bits from Dracula because it's written in a epistolary fashion, meaning that every day I get a new, or not every day, but every day that Jonathan Harker wrote in his diary or wrote a letter, I get a new email about what's happening in Dracula today. Oh my gosh. Uh, anyway, so I'm reading Dracula that way. Uh, but I wanted to consider that in the context of Twilight, especially because as a Seattle area person, uh, I was really struck by the way that class or is or rather isn't represented in the books and the movies especially and in Eclipse specifically um, how gang violence is initially blamed for the newborn vampire murders. Like I said, that's going to feel like a left turn because like, why am I talking about gang violence? But Seattle, like many large cities, does have gangs. They exist uh, and they have gang violence like they're real. It's not that they don't happen in Seattle. But it's not a really prominent concern no. here. Uh, if there was a string of murders in Seattle, especially right now, it would be blamed on homelessness. Yep. That is, that's what it would be. Um, if you're not from this area, you may not know this. This is, this is really a Puget Sound thing. Um, but with Amazon and the many other large tech companies moving into Seattle, much of the affordable housing has been purchased by tech workers or rented by tech workers. Basically, there's a, a lot of gentrification happening. Um, which grows. Yeah, which drastically changes neighborhood culture and has resulted in violence, especially against mar marginalized people in areas like Capitol Hill. Um, raising rents also drive low income people out and into the streets, meaning that homelessness is an increasingly visible problem in Seattle. Homelessness has always existed in Seattle, but the problem is growing in visibility. You see more and more. You literally see more and more homeless people because of, you know, this myriad of issues with regard to um, pr house pricing and homelessness is a complicated issue but at its basis like at its most basic level homelessness is to not have a home and when the homes are too expensive more people do not have a home um uh and like i said increasing invisibility in seattle uh to the point that our local sinclair station sinclair being like a right-wing media organization um the station is called Como. They produced a documentary called seattle is dying about how homelessness um is ruining like homelessness specifically not income disparity, tech industries, gentrification, any of those related issues. The documentary is about how homelessness is ruining Seattle. Uh, it was full of misinformation and extremely biased reporting, but because it came from a news station, um, everybody just bought into it, right? Uh, but there's a pretty noticeable divide in attitudes about homelessness before and after this documentary aired. The documentary is so fear-mongering. It's not great. Um, it, I've only <laughs> seen parts of it, but it's bad. Yeah, the attitudes in what what going to Seattle is like are noticeably different before and after Seattle is dying yep. aired. Like I, before, before Seattle is dying aired, I never got questions about like, is it safe to go to Seattle? Yeah, it's safe. Yeah. I, so at my job, one of the things that we did was we gave us some Mariners tickets and we had somebody contact us and be extremely angry that the, the prize for this was Mariners tickets. Cause that meant she would have to take her children to Seattle and how Dare we 
How dare we have her force her to take her children to Seattle where it's so dangerous. Right. And, that you know, of course, people are always going to worry about being in a big city for a lot of reasons. Um, but the attitude about the safety of Seattle drastically changed before and after this documentary. Like, even though, like, Seattle <laughs> yeah. is like the danger doesn't <laughs> the danger comes from the fucking tech bro. Right. We know that Stephanie Meyer didn't go to Forks before writing this book, right? She'd never been there. Um, Obviously, because she wouldn't, it wouldn't just be like, let's go to Seattle. That's a a drive. That's a fucking drive. And and like, just to be clear too, Forks is a town heavily affected by the shrinking logging industry after protections for the endangered spotted owl were introduced in the 90s. That is not a place of like, like a just normal middle class. This is, Forks is an area with large income discrepancy. Um, What's that? Disparity. Disparity. Yeah, income disparity. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Anyway, anyway, Forks is a logging town. Logging towns were heavily affected by this, and they are not necessarily like the bastion of the middle class. Um, Anyway, so Meyer didn't go to Forks and likely doesn't care about Seattle's culture beyond it being the nearby big city, right? She probably doesn't care about that. Which, like, Portland might be closer. Might be. Um, She assumes, I believe, that because Seattle is a big city, it has gang violence, right? But this struck me as really interesting because of how Seattle is viewed by outsiders um, and because class isn't really something that we have touched on yet. In all honesty, it wasn't until that documentary aired and the police brutality protests of 2020, but that obviously came later, um, that I ever heard people talking about Seattle as a place that's unsafe. Yeah, like as kids, like, so we grew up in a small town, as we've said before, like one of the things that I would like to do for my birthday often was like, let's go to Seattle mm-hmm. because that was, a, that was a trip we got to do. And like as like, Middle schoolers and high schoolers were just walking around like alleys. Yeah. Never felt unsafe. No. And and our parents would drop us off there and it wasn't yeah. like, it wasn't like, be safe, you guys. And like, it's not like we didn't see homeless people. Right. Now, I think that that would be something that people are afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, as in any city, there are places that are more safe than others. Um, but I don't remember this pervasive attitude of Seattle being threatening. And much of that fear comes not from tech bros who start fights with queer folks on Capitol Hill, but from seeing homeless people, not yeah. s- not homeless people attacking people, just seeing them. Yeah, no, as 100 percent true. Like and what get- when we say like the violence that's happening to queer people on on Capitol Hill, like I don't think. People are moving out of Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Like they're that's it's no longer like they're moving out of it because of it. It's it's truly a really really bad situation, and that doesn't get fucking talked about, right? Uh, but visible like visible homeless people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How dare they? Right. Twilight obviously predates this documentary, Seattle is dying. Um, but there is an association in the common consciousness between cities and danger. Never mind that Washington's many famous serial killers often operated in small towns. Um, precisely because of class. Like, that is what drives a lot of this fear um, and racism. Uh, the thing, the th- another thing a lot of people don't know about Seattle is that, yeah, it's more diverse than a lot of Washington, but uh, Washington's really fucking white. Yeah. It's a lot more conservative than you'd think. Yeah. Um, Especially the further you get out. But even The further so, you get away from I-5. Yeah. Um, but even in Seattle now with all yeah. the tech people, it's 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 one of those things where I think it's a very like, of course, I'm for gay marriage. But Trump was a businessman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and given what Twilight is suggesting about class and Seattle as a place of gang violence, this really interested me because I was so struck by like the gang yeah. violence headline. I was like, that's what they 
in Seattle, we went with gang violence. That's where we're going. Even just like serial murders. Yeah. Like, I would buy that. I mean, we have a reputation. Yeah. Um, It just struck me as odd. And then I was like, why does that strike me as odd? And it's like, well, I never really hear about gang violence here. Yeah. And it's not because it doesn't happen. It's just because that's not... It's not a big issue. That's, that's not the big fear. <laughs> um, so to return to Twilight, as I said, we'll come back. We came back to it. Obviously, the Cullens are super, super wealthy. And we've already established that they're aspirational, right? The Cullens are like super rich. And the book wants us to be the Cullens. It's like, wouldn't you love to be it? And it's like, yeah, I kind of would, you know? Mm-hmm. I got to be honest. I would love to have that I kind would, of disposable uh, income. Yeah. Um, could i sleep at night i don't know uh twilight- well, can you now but the thing is i wouldn't have to sleep at night because i'm a vampire uh twilight is drawing a clear line between what people ought to strive for eternal life whiteness wealth and restraint right these are things that are all entangled within the world of twilight i don't think we need to try out the examples because it's all right there in the text um this is a quote from mainstream monsters the otherness of humans in twilight the vampire diaries in true blood which is by mark ryan who writes Part of the enduring appeal of the vampire is that they often lead extraordinarily luxurious lives and excessive or extreme forms of capitalism are tropes which have always been prominent in contemporary vampire fiction. A glance at the Cullen's light airy mansion, a striking contrast to Dracula's dark and dilapidated castle, confirms the wealth of the Cullen family, no doubt due to centuries of compound interest in Alice's forecast- forecasting abilities. Their wealth- Cheating. Yeah. Their wealth is also evidenced by 17-year-old Edward Cullen's ride to school, a silver Volvo, the suite of luxury vehicles in the Cullen's garage, including a Mercedes and Porsche, and the honeymoon destination, the Cullen's privately owned island off the Brazilian coast. Sorry for the spoiler. Um, the theme of wealth and excess has been an enduring one, as Gelder has argued, quote, The vampire's nature is fundamentally conservative. It never stops doing what it does, but culturally this creature may be highly adaptable. Thus it can be made to appeal to or generate fundamental urges located somehow beyond culture, desire, anxiety, fear, while simultaneously it can stand in for a range of meanings and positions in culture, unquote. So unlike Dracula or many other historical vampire narratives, the Cullens do not inhabit a decaying castle because their way of life is not fading and is not being critiqued, right? Unlike Dracula, they are not relics of the past, even though they are literally (laughs) relics of the past. This is not a gothic novel in that sense. Um, And because the Cullens do not feed off of humans, there is no criticism of the wealthy class feeding off of the working class, uh, as there is in some other modern vampire stories. Even though the Southern Vampire Mysteries, aka True Blood, um, and Anne Rison's books often humanize vampires, in my in my opinion, there is still some attempt to portray them as feeding off of humanity in a destructive fashion, right? Like, well, like a bill. Yeah, Sookie is horrified by the way that Eric acts on a ta- on occasion. She's still like, I'd hit it though, but she's also kind of horrified by the shit that he does, right? They, the vampires in these stories do not care about human life the way that humans do. Instead, in Twilight, the Cullens are aspirationally wealthy fig- figures without flaws. They're distant but caring to those around them. They are good people with a capital G and a capital P. Um, What we're being told here is that there is nothing wrong with amassing huge quantities of wealth and spending it only on yourself. 
Though the Cullens do not commit physical violence against humans, there is nothing said or even implied about hoarding wealth you do not need and the effects that may have on a community, especially a community like Forks, which again was highly impacted by spotted owl protections in the 90s. Now, I'm all for environmentalism. I'm all for protecting the spotted owl. But this was not inconsequential for the people that lived in Forks, right? This is not inconsequential for the logging industry. Um, And that's something that like, we have to acknowledge, right? Like we have to understand that people's lives were effectively ruined by this. And communities like Forks, communities like uh, even uh, Darrington up north, um, I think the even Snohomish, Snohomish, it's it picked itself back up. Yeah, like the the issues with um, uh, farm not farm uh, milk cows, dairy, dairy farms. Yeah. They, like these, these have real impacts on people that contribute to poverty in these communities. And here come the fucking Cullens in their mansion, just hoarding their wealth ugly mansion. that they don't need. Just, just, they don't even eat. Just let them be bad, right? Um, let them have started a wildlife um, sanctuary where they also use it to hunt responsibly, right? Like brilliant, yeah. Uh, this is another quote here from Happily Forever After, Constructing Conservative Youth Ideology in the Twilight series by Julia Perlman. Though the vampires of Twilight struggle to understand themselves and their place in the world, ultimately Meyer positions the vampire as the figure to which readers aspire. While contemporary popular culture representations of the vampire generally depict, quote, a being who is simultaneously terrifying and attractive, even envied, a being whose allure reaches in- reaches to the deepest levels of the collective unconscious, unquote, the Cullen family are o- only terrifying because of their devastating good looks, expensive cars, and designer clothes that signal so- social superiority, whiteness, and intimidation. Myers vampires embrace a more traditional, wholesome lifestyle and take great pleasure in their heightened vampire abilities. Meyer utilizes the subversion Rice founded, embedding the vampire in society, but rather than force the reader to consider his in- inner demons, tells the reader that the social order is corrupt. There is usually, like in vampire fiction, generally speaking... Um, there's some level of horror to a vampire story, including vampire romances, right? There's usually some, uh, I think it's objection. There's that feeling of revulsion and mm-hmm. desire at the same time. Um, there's the idea of disgust and pleasure at the idea of drinking blood or being so close to life and death at the same time. Let's, that's usually what Taboo. vampire, yeah, there's, that's usually what vampire fiction is trading in. Um, that's not really the case in Twilight. Uh, while there is a threat from some vampires and Edward does conceivably have the capability to hurt Bella, we never really feel that threat. Except maybe in Midnight Sun, um, which was published long after the end of the series. Uh, there is very little to be afraid of in Twilight. Like the cones are not scary. Um, which, you know, that's not inherently bad. You can do whatever you want with vampires and it doesn't have to be satisfying to me or anybody else. Um, but Myers vampires are aspirational without any of the drawbacks uh, yeah. and arguably make the case that they are, there are good kinds of consumption and bad kinds and that personal mediation is the solution. It makes it feel like she just had like a wheel with like different types of monsters mm-hmm. and she spun it. She already had the story, but she just spun it. Like, Legit. Whatever it is. That's what they are. If they were fairies in this story, I feel like it would not, we would not spend so much fucking time fixating on the sparkling sparkles. would make sense. Right. Um, still need to be evil though. Yeah. Uh, so in our second Vampire Diaries episode, we talked about the relationship between this take on vampires and neoliberalism, which is basically that neoliberalism places a lot of emphasis on the individual as a means of getting out of societal problems. So like the idea that we can, um, you know, 
change our light bulbs to end climate change, right? Like it's not that simple. Maybe if, yes, if we all use the right kind of light bulbs, we would make a an impact on climate change, but it is still not the fault of the individual that climate change exists. The impact would probably be that companies would stop making the other ones <laughs> and that therefore the companies would be the big, the ones that actually change it. Right. And they're the ones, the biggest issue. Right. So, so the thing is that neoliberalism, neoliberalism is a complicated topic that I'm not going to go into all over again, but basically it, it, a lot of it is about um, the freedom of business and the morality of the individual. Um, that is largely what's going on here too. If only all vampires could tighten their belts and eat animals and deny themselves. It's re- this is a sidebar. It's really irritating that they say eating animals is like eating tofu. Like that's gross. Hey, Stephanie Meyer, have you ever had tofu? It's good. <laughs> yeah, actually. Um never mind that it's a huge food source elsewhere in the world. So are you telling me that the entire like group of people that eats soy as a food source is not eating real food? Tofu's delicious. Tofu's good as fuck. Um, anyway. <laughs> the implication- You just have to cook it with something. Yeah. Um, if you're just eating raw-ass tofu out of the package at the grocery store, that's on you, buddy. So that's largely what's going on here. The idea of, like, replacing a societal problem with the individual action. Um, you know, if all vampires could tighten their belts and only eat, an- and only eat animals and deny themselves- the implication is that there would be no larger issue of eating humans. And while I'm not advocating for you eating humans, this is now, this is not the first time I've had to say I'm not in favor of cannibalism on this podcast. I don't know why this keeps happening. Um, this is a neoliberal perspective, which is in line with the Cullen's supposedly innocent hoarding of wealth, right? The Cullen's aren't doing anything wrong. They just have money. What's wrong with that, right? What's wrong with that? They worked for it. They worked. Yeah. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They pulled themselves up by by Allison's, by Alice's visions of the future. Uh, This is a quote from Twilight's heteronormative reversal of the monstrous utopia and the Gothic design, which is by Kelly Boudreaux-White, who writes, In this context, the appeal of Gothic as a new cloaking device for romantic fantasy becomes understandable as a resurfacing of superstition or what Victoria Nelson uh, identifies as, quote, displaced Newman, unquote, which counteracts the dilemma of the rational subject who nonetheless acts as if the mythical relations between things were real. By substituting the exterior exteriorized condition of belief with an internalized faith in the possibility of both magic and romantic love, the guilt over consumerism can be alleviated, the conditions of capitalism disavowed. In short, we can believe that people do not exploit one another. Exploitation is only a choice that some consumers, the less restrained vampires, make. In such a romanticized moral consumerism, people live for each other rather than for individual gain. Such a fantasy is indeed alluring for adolescents and adults alike because it involves more than finding a place to belong or even the surface-level disavowal of aging and death. More than that, the utopian gothic of Twilight offers the fantasy that, given the right community, the path of consumerism leads to heaven. We discussed in the past how this series fails to engage me as a reader because while it does hearken to gothic literature, it does so in a way that doesn't work for me. (laughs) Um, We don't have to rehash all of that, but what interested me about this quote was the emphasis on consumerism. Um, What this states is that people don't exploit one another. Exploitation is a choice rather than a series of choices you may not realize that you're making, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, A person must consciously think, I am exploiting you to exploit you, which is not how the world works if only if only we know we know that that's not true ignorance does not erase exploitation but that is on some level the case that twilight makes not only that but as Boudreaux white says here quote given the right community the path of consumerism leads to heaven unquote eat right and you'll live a good life which looks a lot like conspicuous consumption right 
Um, buy right and you'll live a good life. Deny yourself indulgences and you'll live a good life. All of this is tied up in literal consumerism and unquestioned capitalism with the occurring of wealth being symbolic of some kind of reward. The Cullens are rewarded with wealth because they're good people. Uh, never mind that the hoarding of wealth is bad, actually. Um, it's messy at best, irritating at worst. And we'll talk more about it in our next Twilight episode. But I really wanted to mention it here because of everything going on with Seattle and like consumption and the moralizing about like, like the whole idea of vegetarian vampires. Like, I mean, like on a literal level, you know, what? A, do you know what a vegetable is? Because it's not a deer. I know. I, I, I know. I always thought that was weird because like <sighs> I get that they're trying to make a little joke. It's like a little joke, but also it's not a good joke. Um. I know this is really complex and and weird. It was a weird way to talk about this, I think, to bring in Seattle. But like, that's how it that's what I was struck by is the the lack of regard for class when like, it's all about class. Yeah, it like it re- like, it's also about racism, which is also about class. Like class is, you know, one way by which racism is enforced. Racism is a way by which class is enforced. Like these things are these things are complex. And I can't you can't consume your way into being a good person, which this series simply does not yeah. understand. Well, I think it makes sense with this series, especially when um, you look at how fucking racist it is. It's so racist. And you, you guys. can't take that classism away from from like some of the inherent racism that's in there. It's so racist. Um, but, you know, as we just discussed, you can't consume your way into being a good person. So I think if you like Twilight, that's okay. Yeah. That's what I want everybody to do. It's like, it's it's okay to like Twilight. I disagree with you, but it's okay. But like, but it's, I like we're a lo- saying it's important to understand. Yeah. Like, like come at it and, and understand, like, here's what's being communicated under the surface. Don't let that, you know, don't let that sink. Don't let, don't let that sink in. You never hear that on Twitter. Don't let that sink in. Um, my favorite thing on earth is the picture of like a sink at a door and it says, let that sink in. <laughs> it's so, it's one of those memes that gets me every time that and rat is short for Raphael. Oh my God. <laughs> Fucking Raphael. Let that sink in. Um, anyway, <laughs> do you have anything else to say about twilight? So one of the things I thought a lot about, clips. um, when we like thinking about reading this book and watching the movies and something that, yo, that movie sucked. Yeah. The movie sucked, but, <laughs> In the books, they describe the Collins as beautiful, like, ridiculously beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And in the movies, they look fucking weird. They're so goofy. But you know what? I feel like I've, I'm have i into it because I feel like there comes a point where you're so beautiful, you look fucking weird. Yeah. And I know that probably wasn't their intention, but for me, it works. Yeah. It's kind of that, the biblical angel effect. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like Jasper Cullen would look at me and say, be not afraid. <laughs> Um, I they look terrible. They look awful and weird. But in my mind, they're so beautiful that they look. They're weird. uncanny. They yeah. gotta look a little uncanny. Yeah, it's kind of like fairies, right? Yeah. If I watch a court of thorns and they look beautiful and not fucking weird, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I'm just not. I'm just gonna be upset. And so, like, you know what? I'm sure they didn't mean for them to look like this, but I like it. Yeah, and I just wanted to say that. Yeah. So that was, I'm sorry about the weird diversion, but I thought it was interesting. We didn't, we haven't even hit two hours yet. And you know what? You have to suffer. You chose to listen to this. You get to, you get to listen to my weird thoughts about Seattle. Um, Thank you for indulging me. 
Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com, which has all of our previous episodes, including our Twilight and Vampire Di- Diaries episodes. If for some reason you want to listen to us talk more about teen vampires, y'all, I can't. I can't. They're such good conversations, though. Teen va- I'm over teen vampires. Uh, we did put what we do in the shadows into the poll. They're not for- teens. They're not teens. And I'm... Listen... You cannot find a thesis more opposed to Twilight than I became a vampire so I could suck blood and fuck forever. <laughs> and that's why I want to talk about what we do in the shadows. Um, if you like us, consider uh, shooting us an email to join our Discord. Our Discord is a lot of fun. We're always talking about how much we hate Empire Wastelines. It's lit. It's lit, as the as the kids say. I don't know that they say lit. No, I think I read something about what they say They're now. saying tu- tubular. I hope they're saying bodacious. They should be. I think that Hella should come back. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know anything about teenagers. Um, Anyway, our Discord is a lot of fun. You can shoot me an email at contact at fakeygirlscast.com and I can get you an invite. Um, We just keep it. We don't publicly post it because people suck. I just don't want the bad faith people getting in there and then me feeling like I have to like be the fucking Discord police. I like it chill and quiet. Um, Next time, we're going to be doing St. Maud, uh, which is going to be very interesting. I hope you're excited to talk about William Blake. Uh, <laughs> after that, oh, so good. after that, we're going, to be, we're going to be doing the Matrix series. I would expect maybe two episodes on I the would, Matrix. Yeah, I'm going to say. I think we should also talk about the Animatrix. Uh, I was talking to Bob about it, and he really wants me to watch the Animatrix, and I told him I'd watch it. So Yeah, I think we should also do the Animatrix. Yeah, because he said that it bridges the gap between the first movie and the second movie. Okay. And and when I did watch the second movie, I, I literally was like, have I missed something? And the yeah. answer was yes. Yeah. So I, I would expect two episodes on The Matrix, yeah. um, especially because there is so much to talk about in it. I want to talk about simulation theory because, yeah. again, I'm watching The Good Place and the part when Michael <laughs> dumps iced tea over um, over Eleanor for, for essentially getting into determinism through simulation theory. Uh, I'm about it. Um, after that, we're going to be talking about pushing daisies because I deserve nice things. And I like to look at Lee Pace. And that's all. <laughs> um, if that's the, that's going to be the whole episode. It's going to be like, okay, we're going to start at the top of his head and go down all the way to his feet. And we're going to talk about everything we love about Lee Pace. When Missy used to have a bad day, I'd spam her with Lee Pace pictures. It's nice. I love it. I love him. He's be- he's a beautiful man. That's he's a true. beautiful big man. He is very big. He could pick me up in his arms and I would thank him. Yeah. Um, he could give me a little pat on the head and I would thank him. He- could he stomp you? No, he would never. He might. Not in not in pushing daisies anyway. <laughs> in something else probably, but not in pushing daisies. Uh, I can't wait to talk about pushing daisies. I finally get to live my dream of talking about how it's inverse noir. I hope you guys are ready. This is my theory that I've been sitting on forever. Um, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.